sports equals making money. Making money equals national interests. National interest equals politics. By definition, sports equals politics. It is the week of December 6th, and welcome to episode 109 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Captain Corey Ray, U.S. Navy, faculty and former chair of the Department of Strategy and Policy at the National War College. We'll be discussing the upcoming Beijing Olympics, for which the Biden administration has just announced a diplomatic boycott and other aspects of sports diplomacy and national security. Corey, thanks for joining us. Les, thanks for having me today. I'm very excited to be here and talk about sports and national security. All right. Why don't you kind of introduce yourself to our audience? By the way, I am looking forward to what I think is a fantastically interesting and super topical discussion here about events that are in the news. So very fortuitous that we're having you on this week. Tell us about who you are, where you are right now, and your angle on this important issue. All right. Thanks again, uh, Les. Thanks for having me on. Uh, one thing I'd like to make clear up front that I am not representing the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the National Defense University. I am still active duty Navy captain, and these opinions that I present today are my own based on the research that I've done uh, over the few years I've been here at the National War College. So I am a Navy flyer by trade, uh, but once the Navy decided my flying days were over, uh, I was uh, assigned to the National War College here. I was assigned to the National War College in Washington, D.C., where I teach national security strategy development to military and civilian officials. Great. So it it kind of begs the question here, sports, national security, we don't often think of them uh, in the same thought or the same paragraph. How do you bring those two things together? So as as I mentioned, the the mission of the National War College is to prepare these senior military and civilians to develop national security strategy. Stated simply, how do you assign limited resources to achieve national interests in an achievable and coherent manner. And so to be clear, when we use the term national security, it's more than just the interest of the physical security of the United States. National security and U.S. interests include ensuring American citizens prosper economically and maintain our values. So the course I teach uses sports to address two elements of strategic logic. One, contextual development, and as a way or a mean to achieve a desired end state. Specific to contextual development, national context and analyzed through the lens is usually analyzed through the lens of what we call drivers. Uh, drivers are a collection of indicators which defines how a country makes decisions and why they make decisions and their priorities. And if you look at those historical drivers, they consisted of economics, demographics, uh, resources, and things like that. My course argues that sports can be used as a driver to conduct contextual analysis. Uh, so, for example, if you want to have an idea of a country's economics, you could potentially look at their sporting leagues, right? Do they have those liberal capitalistic tendencies that, that a Western democracy has? And then secondly, I kind of look at sports as a way or mean. And, and probably the best example of this is the Nixon administration's use of ping pong diplomacy in the early 70s to establish rapprochement with China uh, back in the Nixon administration. So that's how I connected those two key elements of strategic logic using sports to define context and sport as a way or mean to achieve a desired end state. All right, let's go from table tennis or ping pong to tennis, women's tennis in particular. There is a, a Chinese 
tennis superstar named Peng Shui, uh, who has made some charges uh, about an assault against a senior Chinese official. Uh, She disappeared for a while inside China. There have recently been reports of her talking to Olympic officials uh, and tennis officials and things like that. It's not at all clear she has freedom of movement or freedom of thought or freedom of speech and all of that. Uh, this is this is very much an issue uh, right now between the United States and China. The World Tennis Association has said they will no longer sponsor events in China because of the treatment of Peng Shui. How, how does that issue kind of fit into your model of, of sports as connected to national security? Les, I would offer that this is a classic example of trying to develop strategy when you have conflicting interests, right? So again, those core interests of the United States or any other country for that matter, protecting its citizens, making sure your, your citizens are economically prosperous and maintaining their values. So here on the one hand, you have the WTA, the NBA, the IOC, or any other number of private organizations accessing the Chinese markets to make money. Again, that's a U.S. interest. The problem comes when the country you are trading with does not align with your values. Another U.S. interest. In this case, the WTA has decided to prioritize values while most of your other companies and corporations have prioritized profit. I'm not making a value judgment on either one of those. This is just conflicting interest when, when you're developing strategy. All right, let's talk about someone who maybe doesn't quite fit into that model, uh, Enos Cantor. Uh, the NBA star who is now in the Boston Celtics. Uh, he just became an American citizen, changed his name uh, to Enos Cantor Freedom uh, and made a bunch of uh, great comments about, at least I thought there were great comments about the United States and, and human rights. He's been extremely critical of China in the world, China's suppression of Muslims in Xinjiang province, uh, China's crackdown on human rights in Hong Kong, uh, China's threats against Taiwan, number of other issues. He's been very outspoken. While other bigger stars in the NBA have not been willing to criticize China. In fact, there was a celebrated case a few years ago where an NBA team official made critical comments of China. That person was was uh, basically silenced. The team that employed him had to take steps to improve their own relationship with China. But here's Enos Cantor kind of throwing a spanner into the NBA works all on his own. How does your context describe what he is doing? I would offer that Enos Cantor has prioritized a different interest than what his employer has prioritized. Right? So, for example, the NBA has prioritized profit with their business uh, engagements in China. Enos Cantor individually has prioritized maintaining his personal values. And so really what Enos Cantor has done, excuse me, it's Enos Cantor Freedom. I, I should you know, say his whole, whole name. Um, that, that's a prioritization decision. And again, this is all part of strategy. You know, he has decided with his resources that are available to him to prioritize maintaining his values uh, and, and maintaining that, that uh, human rights and dignity values. And his employer ha- has not necessarily done that at the international relationship with China. And I think that's where you're seeing the conflict. I mean, how do you, how do you uh, develop a strategy, a business strategy when the individual has a significantly different interest or desired end state than the employer. And I think you're seeing that conflict play out right now. Uh, Arguably, his playing time may suffer a little bit. Uh, The Celtics uh, may not be on TV quite a bit. In China, if you recall from the Daryl Morey tweet, the Houston Rockets were basically excommunicated from from the Chinese market. And so you'll see a handful of uh, teams uh, as a result. So, for example, Daryl Morey went to the 76ers as their general manager, and the 76ers get no play or very little play in China as well because of that Daryl Morey tweet when he was with the Houston Rockets. And you're seeing that with the Celtics with Enos Cantor now. Just to push back a little bit, it kind of makes me think the 
NBA as a corporation, knowing that it's filled with Americans and others who have freedom of speech uh, and who can advocate for things on their own and who in many ways have a bigger microphone than the organization itself should factor that into their decision making and not put the organization in a position where it's prioritizing the dollar over basic human rights values, that that might be the more intelligent strategy for the NBA. Lest I think that that's a that's a very logical pushback. Um, my my course argues that the NBA in China is no different than Apple Computer in China. It's a private multi billion dollar corporation accessing another market to increase their profits. I think the challenge with the NBA is it has branded itself as a human rights organization. I don't necessarily know that Apple or Google or whatever has.、Um, So, for example, they, they don't necessarily make their brand that much of a priority, but the NBA does. I think the challenge with the NBA is they've got a little bit of a hypocrisy going because domestically they are all about the human rights and, and the values, but when you go internationally, they're, they're selling out for the dollar. And again, it's very difficult for for us to 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 decide if that's right or wrong because there's really no support from the U.S. government. Right, so who, for example, is subsidizing the loss of profits if the NBA suffers? Right, the U.S. doesn't writ large have a good good China strategy. So while in the microcosm of just the NBA in China, it's it's very easy to sit there and and hammer on them. But globally, do we have a good China strategy? All right, this is a good segue to kind of the super hot topic.、Uh, and and I rarely, you know, I am not a person who is a big fan of the Olympics generally,、uh, and in particular the Winter Olympics. I find to be a bunch of Events I know nothing about. I don't understand why anyone would do the luge, much less compete at a really high level for it. So I'm I'm not a I'm a sports fan, but I'm not necessarily a Winter Olympic sports fan. But that is the hot topic right now. Beijing,、uh, the capital of China, is hosting the Winter Olympics in two months. The eyes of the world will be on China. There's been a lot of discussion of certain kinds of boycotts、uh, by the United States of the Chinese Olympics. Because of the human rights situation in that country, because of its aggressive moves on the international stage that have、uh, irritated the United States and neighbors of China in the Indo-Pacific, the big question here is is what to do about the Winter Olympics in February of 2022. You've written an article、uh, advocating a certain kind of boycott. Can you talk about your article and what option you're laying out here? Absolutely, Les. One thing to recall, though, about the Winter Olympics, I believe it's going to be the first time for、uh, for Beijing. I think they've got、uh, a sport called skeleton, where it's kind of luge, but it's head first. And I think there's also like a double person luge this year. So、uh, when you're talking about、uh, <laughs> crazy winter sports,、uh, you're not making this better for me. I'm, I'm, Maybe I'm the hockey. Maybe I like the hockey. I'm not sure about the other.、Okay. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, absolutely. So,、um, so if you let's look at a, let's look at a boycott fundamentally. A, a boycott is kind of a a strategic approach to achieving a desired end state, right? So I'm going to put this back in analytical, strategic. Terms. So you've got a desired end state, which is changing China's behavior, and you've got a strategic approach, which is a boycott. And if I may, can I read you a quote from Dr. Harry Edwards? Yes, please. He's a he's a U.S. socialist.、Uh, so, he's a U.S. sociologist、uh, out of Berkeley, and he was in、uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos's inner circle back in the San Jose State Track Days '68 Olympics. Okay, so this is a quote. It's been attributed to Dr. Harry Edwards. Is the you is the White House serious in asking the American public to accept the notion that this nation's foreign policy has been reduced to employing a boycott of a sports event as the principal non-military response to what Carter has called the greatest threat to world peace and stability since World War II? 
If so, we should be, be debating questions of considerably greater gravity than whether the country should participate in the 1980 Summer Games. So really, what he's clarifying here, do we think that a boycott of a sporting event will achieve the desired end of changing China's behavior towards the Uyghurs and human rights? And so boycotts as a strategic approach do not have a successful history of achieving this desired end state. But obviously, the Soviet Union did not leave Afghanistan one day sooner because we boycotted Moscow in 1980. Um, so specific to my argument, I argue that if a boycott were to work, it should be athlete led, right? If the athletes themselves were to get together as a group and say, we will not participate in the Olympics in Beijing, that would, that would have some level or affect some level of change. I still think it would be short term, but the fact that a potential U.S. diplomatic boycott for an event where the very highest of high level officials don't go to begin with, uh, and it's not by an ally, uh, I, I don't expect that boycott to have much success to achieve that desired end state. You're, you're signaling, but but the rest of the Western world already knows our stance on it. And so the target audience that we are sending this message towards is, is not going to see this message or receive this message at all. So I would offer, if you really wanted to affect some change, it would have to be an athlete-led boycott. It does seem like the, uh, I, I have to tell you, my first reaction to hearing about the diplomatic boycott idea, and, it, and this was floated a couple of weeks ago, was we're sending diplomats to the Olympics. I think it's people thought, oh, I forgot that officials went to the Olympics and now we're not going to do it. Who will, who realistically, who will even notice that anything has changed? Right. So if you recall, uh, the last Winter Olympics, Pyeongchang South Korea, 2018, Vice President uh, Pence was in the was in the VIP box along with some South Korean official or correction North Korean officials, and that interchange did not go well. Um, you know, as, as an interesting side note, I actually part of my course includes a discussion on how do you prepare senior officials to go to a sporting event, right? Because if if it were not for COVID, uh, I would have expected either the president or the vice president to attend Tokyo er, uh, earlier this year. Because Tokyo or Japan is such a critical ally of ours. And so Summer Olympics a little bit bigger. If the vice president or the secretary of state doesn't go to Beijing in 22, I don't know that that's... I'm going a little off script here, listeners. Uh, I recall watching the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. And Bill Clinton, our president at the time, was standing in the... uh, host box at the arena where all the athletes marched in on the opening opening night. And he had a, Bill Clinton had a tear going down his cheek and me being a little bit of a cynical person, I thought that was for show. And then I realized that all of the other members of my family who were watching this with me were also kind of tearing up uh, because, you know, in part because the president was doing, I mean, there is this emotional connection uh, people have to the, I think this is true for Americans and everybody else. You, there's an emotional connection between you, your country, and the athletes who are representing your country at an international event like this. And so we're, we're talking about, you know, very kind of human reactions and human emotions. There does seem to be a lot of potential here to deliver a message in that context. In other words, there, there's a lot of attention. People care about these athletes. They care about their country. And when something happens at an event like this, it can have a really big impact. Oh, absolutely. If, uh, if you recall 1996 Atlanta, I would offer uh, President Clinton was tearing up 
because that was Muhammad Ali lighting the torch, uh, the legendary Muhammad Ali, and uh, he was suffering from Parkinson's, I believe, at the time, lighting the torch. Uh, but that was a big moment for, for many Americans to see how far, you know, that represented Muhammad Ali, who had spoke out against the Vietnam War. Now he's lighting the torch uh, for his country. You know, you could go look back at 1980 and how unifying uh, the upstart American hockey team was to get us out of the doldrums of, uh, of the 70s, right? Here we are. We can compete with the Soviet Union. Um, there's the, the Olympic history is rife with countries using the Olympics, right? We, I talked about it before as a way to achieve a national interest. In 1988, um, South Korea wanted to get on the world map. Right. They were pretty small and unknown at the time. 1964, Tokyo, Japan wanted to recover and be part of the, you know, the part of the world again after World War II. They hosted the 1964 Olympics. 2008, Beijing, after a, uh, a century of humiliation, this was China's coming out party. Right. So there's very, very very many examples of countries using the Olympics to generate that nationalism, hopefully in a good way, uh, and, and really binding the citizens together. Well, and I'm also thinking of the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Jesse Owens goes, wins four gold medals, shows up the pretensions of, you know, Germany's Aryan master race nonsense and demonstrates in front of the world that it's all a bunch of bunk. Um, Not sure it had much of an impact on the way history unfolded for the next few years, but gosh, you look back on that and you think that was a wonderful thing that happened. Right. So you got to ask yourselves, ask ourselves, what would have happened if we had a boycott in 1936? Now, the thing to realize, that's been called the Nazi Olympics. But if you look at when Germany was actually awarded hosting duties, it was before the Nazi party had come into power. And you realize when 1940 Olympics came around, they were canceled, right? So, um, you know, obviously the IOC wasn't awarding them uh, to Hitler. Uh, people also don't recall South Korea was a pretty good dictatorship when it was awarded the Olympics, but by the time 1988 rolled around, they'd come into one of our leading democracies. And so um, you, you, your organization hosted an episode uh, earlier this year in August where one of your panelists argued, hey, we need to go to the Olympics to show show that the American way is, is the right way. And and there's a there's an urban legend that after the 1980 hockey victory in Lake Placid, that uh, Coach Brooks took a phone call from the president, and there's a discussion that said, "Hey, you know, we won. That must that must prove that our our way is the best way, our way of life, our political system." I mean, that's great. You can start to tear up on that and, and get excited. And but here's the thing to remember: for almost an entire generation before that. An entire generation following that, the Soviet Union and Russian hockey absolutely dominated the Olympics. And I didn't hear anybody talking about how, well, the Soviets must have the best way of life because they're dominating on the, on the ice. So Yeah, it, is- it felt really good when we won it that game against the Soviets and then went on to yeah. win the gold medal. That felt great. Yeah, so it felt great when Jesse Owens went and he showed showed up Hitler. Granted, we had our own uh, civil rights issues still at the time, obviously in the 30s, but it felt good in the moment. But again, taking a clinical approach to strategy, did that enact any change? Probably not. And really the core question here you've got to ask yourselves when it comes to sporting events and participation. Does participating in a sporting event hosted by this country legitimize the leader and the political system, right? The IOC will argue, no, it does not. The IOC will want to maintain the purity of sports and say, hey, we're here to get beyond that. But it appears that most people agree that if you do participate, you are legitimizing that leader, that political system. And that, and I think that's where we are now, where we are now. And that's the question that fundamentally needs to be answered and asked. I think we should talk about the International Olympic Committee. But so, but let's wrap a pin in that. I want to talk about, about China 
right now. China, of course, hosting the Olympics in a couple of months. You referenced the 2008 Olympics, which were, you know, by all accounts, fabulously successful. I think China came in second in winning medals to the United States, just barely. They, they really put on a good show. Their athletes did well. And it did kind of restore some of the international uh, respect and regard that had been sacrificed uh, from Tiananmen Square a few years earlier. So this was kind of, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but in some sense was China's resurgence back into the international community. Is it possible that here, uh, 14 years later, China is making a mistake by inviting the world in it, into its borders at a time when uh, the leader, Xi Jinping, is cracking down on other power centers in China. He is suppressing capitalists. He's suppressing celebrities. Uh, he's secreting away uh, athletes who are internationally renowned, like Peng Shui. He's also going for a third term next year, an unprecedented third term in power as the uh, as the as the dictator of China. Is is he not exposing himself to a potential calamity in a couple of months when the eyes of the world will be inside China? seeing what is going on, and he is going to be subject to the whims of thousands of athletes, presumably some percentage of which will want to make some kind of statement about support for human rights and democracy. Less, less going back to strategic development, this is a calculated risk, right? Uh, Chairman Xi is making a calculated risk assessment here that he believes it's going to be more valuable to show the success of China, even beyond what even beyond the successes of 2018, while still being able to control the narrative. If you recall, 2018 also had its uh, share of issues, uh, how the torch got routed. There were still issues in Tibet. You had American actors and uh, civilian leaders protesting that. You're right. He is opening himself up. But when when he makes that risk reward calculation, he's making a calculated risk that says, I I think this is worth it to host the Olympics and show this, even though I'm bringing in Western media. Um, I would offer COVID has made his life easier and probably was you know obviously he made they made the decision to host before covid was a thing or an issue but i would offer the ability to lock down and limit movement and communications is going to do nothing but help help him Does that make sense I think so, but I, I still, I think the reward, not sure what the reward is for Xi Jinping. 2008 has happened. China's, you know, certainly gotten some bad press, deservedly so recently, but it's not like the Olympics are going to fix that. They've already done the international Olympic thing. They seem to be taking, to me, an unnecessary risk here, particularly with all these independent actors who will be on global television as they compete and get their awards and go through the the process. Uh, and it's it's hard to imagine that the Chinese totalitarian state, such as it is, is going to intervene in Olympic processes to prevent individual athletes from taking actions that embarrass the host country. For example, what if a team of athletes or several teams of athletes decided that they were going to compete, they were going to try to win their events, and then if they made it to the medal stand, they would refuse the medals from the Chinese officials who are giving them to them, saying, I don't want a medal that is tainted by being given to me by a Chinese official. It seems to me like the humiliation, the loss of face from that kind of event is not at all worth whatever the benefit could be from a successful Olympics. Uh, Les, I think that's a great point. Uh, I think there's, there's some things that China has considered. Uh, if you look at the charter of the IOC, 
So to participate, basically Olympic athletes have to agree to making no political statements while they're performing or on the medal stand or anything like that. So if you recall 1968, uh, when Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised the black fist, uh, the IOC and the U.S. Olympic Committee sent them home immediately. You're gone. Their, um, their income opportunities rapidly diminished. And so when you look at winter athletes specifically, right, you could potentially, you know, look at an NBA player and say, sure, you know, what are they going to lose if they get sent home from the Olympics? They're good. But if you're looking at a winter Olympian who has one chance to excel, uh, and this may be dating myself, one chance to get on that Wheaties box, (laughs) right, and and make some money, um, you know, they're probably not going to do anything. Plus, again, the IOC charter says they're not supposed to do that. Now, does that mean that you're not going to have a a situation where, you know, somebody wears a hat, a shirt or something that says freedom or free the Uyghurs, they can't control that. But what they can't control is what gets distributed within China. And I would offer there's probably not any live events, truly live events going in China. And uh, the media editors will be out in full force to make sure that Chinese citizenry does not see any of that at all. Very similar to what happened in 1980. You know, we're like, hey, let's boycott the Olympics. It'll really tell the Russian citizens that uh, their leaders are, you know, not not doing the right thing. We don't own broadcast rights in China. We don't own broadcast rights in the Soviet Union. So I would offer the people we want to message already know the message and the people that we would like to message inside um, the Great Wall are not going to are not going to have access to the message anyways. Is it worth it to give it a shot uh, knowing that it's not going to it's not going to get in every Chinese home. There are people with VPNs who have access to outside news. They saw that athletes were turning down these medals or taking some other step while they're on the medal stand or somewhere else, whether in public. Uh, it seems like that would be significant. Plus, it would the loss of, you know, and I know I'm I'm using a little bit of a loaded term, but the loss of face in the international community uh, would be very detrimental to a lot of the things China is trying to achieve particularly in the in the Indo-Pacific region with its, you know, kind of bizarro wolf warrior bullying tactics with its neighbors. It seems to me like there's, if I were Xi Jinping, I would not be seeing this as an opportunity. I'd be worried that this is going to backfire on me. That, great, great points. Um, w- w- another thing to, uh, to consider is, you know, th- this is a great opportunity. And this is why I argue it's all about the athletes, right? It needs to come from the athletes. So whether it's on the Opening ceremonies, whether it's on the medal stand, to your point, Les, it needs to come from the athletes, right? The athletes need to make make the stand or or, or the display. It, it really can't come from the politicians and, and, and from the top, right? So, again, when the Carter administration decided to boycott, it really didn't have much of success. If that boycott would have come from the ground up and say, hey, the, boy, the, the, the athletes are going to boycott, how do we get the global community of athletes to boycott? That would be huge, right? It really needs to come uh, from the athletes. And, then, and to your point on, is this worth the risk? If, if you look at um, who actually was up for hosting and who was who was available, you could argue that China kind of took this as a yeah, we'll we'll take it. Uh, we got the we got the capacity. Sure, we haven't done it in a Winter Olympics, uh, but it wasn't like there's like a whole bunch of people knocking down the doors. Hosting the Olympics nowadays has really become a resource intensive uh, pr- uh, proposition, and so I, I don't know exactly how excited G was to take it, other than like, yeah, we've proven we can organize large events. We'll take it. But I think there's some things that have happened since he decided to nominate for it or to try to get it in the sports world that are that are not making him sleep well at night. <laughs> and by resource intensive, you mean it costs the host city and the host country more money than it makes in order to put on Olympics. And that's and that's true of summer Olympics and winter Olympics at this point. Well, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So I, th- I think one thing to add here, when we're talking costs, we can also look at Los Angeles 28, right? So Los Angeles is hosting the Olympics in 28. And so there's a little bit of discussion here with if we boycott Beijing 22, does China boycott LA 28? What are the economic impacts of that? So if you were to talk you know, to the state of California, maybe the city of Los Angeles, they may not be overly excited for boycotts, right? Because it just it's, makes everybody's life miserable who's trying to host the future Olympics. What's interesting about Los Angeles is their business model, going back to when they hosted in 84, they are one of the only cities to actually either break even or make a profit because of the facilities in place already, right? So it, it broke Rio because they didn't have all these things in place already. Um, even 2008 Beijing, it hurt them a little bit. And as I understand it, that uh, illustrious bird's nest of an arena will, will get rehabbed to support uh, the Beijing 22 Olympics. But if you look at LA between the new arenas, all the universities, all the resources they already have in place, LA actually can make it work. It's very difficult for another city to actually turn a profit. They've really got to go into it with, we're going to lose money, but we're going to send a message to the world that we are an international player. Let's talk about the International Olympic Committee uh, kind of here before we close. The IOC has been around for a long time. My memory of looking at this back in college a few decades ago was it's the it's kind of the creation of Pierre de Coubertin and the um, some European aristocrats very devoted to kind of a, a sense of energetic athletics that we don't necessarily subscribe to today. This is a little bit of an anachronism in today's world, the IOC and, and the way it does business. Should American officials who interact with the IOC be thinking about alternatives or reform efforts of the IOC to make this body, which does seem to play a role in international diplomacy, something that is more responsive to democracies and uh, those countries that are generally adhering to certain international norms? Fair question, Les. The challenge here is that the IOC is really, for all intents and purposes, an independent sovereign nation with very, very little that you can influence them. Uh, If you go back and look at the 1980 boycott, the Carter administration thought they could just call the USOC, the IOC, and say, hey, look, we'd like to boycott. Uh, Can we turn the Olympics off? And And the IOC is like, who are you again? And basically hung up the phone. It's very similar to FIFA. Right. These are multi-billion dollar private companies that is very difficult to influence. Um, You can try to pay them off. You can send your highest State Department official to talk to them. You can't influence them. And so the only way to actually influence them would be stop participating. And again, that would have to come from the athletes. It would be very difficult for the U.S. government to go to FIFA. I mean, we have sanctioned them, right? So we have actually sanctioned FIFA. Um, if you go back and you, and you look at the uh, the next World Cup, there's been some scandal associated with that. F- U.S. FBI got involved. But to really influence them, it has got to come from the athletes. It's, it's nearly impossible for, the, for any sort of government to influence either FIFA or the IOC, unfortunately. I'm going back to the the women's tennis example and and Peng Shui and and what I think is a an extremely brave and amazing stance taken by the Women's Tennis Association to forego millions of dollars in income to make a stand for their athletes. You, I, and I'm also recalling what has been going on with U.S. women's gymnastics, where the officials who were overseeing uh, that organization appeared to turn a blind eye to some of the abuse that was happening from 
uh, from the doctor and these other scandals. And we've seen a lot of reform there. I'm wondering if, if may, and, and I, 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 maybe I'm reading too much into Enos Cantor Freedom's uh, kind of new activism, but isn't it possible we're seeing a moment here where the athletes are going to grab a hold of the organizations that they're competing in and demand reform? The IOC could not be more disconnected, in my view, could not be more disconnected to the athletes it's supposedly representing uh, it's, it's, it's certainly not as close as the NBA is. I think the NBA needs to do some work. IOC seems even further away from the athletes it's advocating for. I wonder if there's, if it, to your point, it's got to come from the athletes. It seems like, again, a ripe time for reform. I agree, Les. I think there is a, this may be an inflection point. And if you were to equate the IOC on it's sort of, sort of representing Olympic athletes, Take it down a level and look at like a national at the national federations. Um, and really, if you look at the, the data points over the last couple of years, it's really the women's federations that are having the moment, right? You can look at the WNBA actually got an owner removed, right? They they walked out. You know, you've had um, uh, women's soccer teams walk out during a game. WNBA also had an owner defeated in a Senate race, right? So that yeah, the owner get defeated in that in the women's soccer league. They walk, I believe, they walked out during a game to protest. Uh, sexual harassment from one of the coaches. So again, you know, this is supporting the argument. It's got to come from the athletes. Uh, to your point, this may be a, an inflection point where the athletes have said, hey, you are not representing our interests, right? Obviously, Enos Cantor said, hey, I've got this interest here. You're not representing it. I'm going out on my own. But I would offer it, if it comes from the athletes, it'll have a much higher chance of success. Captain Ray, Corey, Thanks a lot for being with us. This has really been a fantastic conversation. Uh, and I have a feeling we're going to be coming back to you for more uh, early next year. Happy to do it. I'll leave you with this one last thing, Les. Um, I'm not a mathematician, but I was jotting this down and trying to figure out, you know, sports and politics, sports and politics. And so if you use the transfer powers of math, in your case, sports equals making money, making money equals national interests, national interest equals politics. By definition, sports equals politics. I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Uh, I love it. That's some that's some excellent math. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jacob Sarnecki for research assistance, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.